The George Floyd murder brought an increased focus on systemic racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion. This time on Let's Talk Hope, we dive into healthcare inequity. Chicago is a very diverse city, but it's a very segregated city. And if you look at our communities of color, you can see that these neighborhoods have the highest rates of diabetes, the highest rates of high blood pressure. You know, it shows that we have a lot of work to do to create um, health equity for our communities. That's Dr. Danae Simpson, a transplant surgeon at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. I'm Marion Shuck, host of Let's Talk Hope, a podcast sponsored by Gift of Hope Organ and Tissue Donor Network and featuring inspiring stories of lasting legacies created through organ and tissue donation. In August 2021, I had the privilege to join Dr. Simpson on a panel at the Black Women's Expo, the country's largest exposition for women at Chicago's McCormick Place. Also on stage with us, Dr. Milda Saunders, an internal medicine physician at University of Chicago Medicine, and Ihama Okeke Banks, Gift of Hope Managers for Partner Relations. We aim to dispel the myths around healthcare equity with a focus on organ and tissue donation. We're about to share that audio with you, edit it for time, and also because my audio wasn't up to our high standards, we've edited me out. But what remains is a valuable conversation. So let's talk hope. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Ihama Okeke Banks. I am the manager for hospital and donation uh, partner relations at Give the Hope Organ and Tissue Donor Network. I am joined at the Black Women's Expo this morning as an expert panel talking about health equity and particularly minority communities and particularly the African-American communities in our area. I am joined today by Dr. Danae Simpson, a transplant surgeon for Northwestern Memorial Hospital, and Dr. Milda Saunders, a internal medicine physician at University of Chicago Medicine. So thank you and good morning. I'm going to ask Dr. Um, Simpson the first question after she introduces herself a little bit. The first question is, can you discuss some of the social determinants of health and what we need to know about health equity challenges for people of color? Sure, and thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to be here to be talking about this. A, a little bit about myself. Um, as uh, you, you said, I'm a transplant surgeon at Northwestern Medicine. Um, I transplant both liver and kidneys. And um, I'm also the founding director of a program we have there called the African American Transplant Access Program. And, you know, the reason why a program like that needs that needs to exist is really wrapped up in your question. It's, it's really uh, points to the social determinants of health and um, some of the alarming trends that we see um, and that patients tell me they see. I have patients come in and tell me, you know, doc, in my neighborhood, I can't find a grocery store, but there is a dialysis center on every corner. And so that speaks to the environment um, that we live in. When I look at a map of Chicago, and, um, you know, last, last year, as you mentioned, with the George Floyd and, and the pandemic, there was a, a, a sort of spotlight that, that was shown on the health inequities that exist in our communities. And if you look at a map of Chicago, um, as I tell people, Chicago is a very diverse city, but it's a, it's a very segregated city. And so you can look at different communities and, and, and sort of see what's going on there. And if you look at our communities of color, particularly our black communities, and you overlay those communities with data from the CDC. They have a 500 uh, cities project where they look at different health conditions. You can see that these neighborhoods have the highest rates of diabetes, the highest rates of 
um, of high blood pressure, um, the top two causes of kidney disease. Um, when you look at kidney uh, data from the US RDS data set, you can see that black patients are almost four times more likely to develop kidney disease than white patients. And a lot of people will ask, you know, is this genetics? And it's not. It's, it's you know, I think genetics can explain a small part of, of kidney disease. But um, a lot of these disease states can be explained by our environment and their, you know, thereby our, the social determinants of health. You know, the, the conditions in which we work, live, play, you know, get our education, so on and so forth. And when you see the differences in resources in these communities, it starts to explain why you see these differences in health care or health outcomes, I should say. You know, I'm glad that we, we're, we're sort of paying more attention to this. Um, it's sad that that needed to, to happen in the setting of things like George Floyd and the pandemic, but um, you know, it shows that we have a lot of work to do to create um, health equity for our communities. Thank you, Dr. Simpson. That really covered a variety of the, the questions I was going to ask today, but really focuses on what are the, the root causes outside of things that we think that might be our own, within our own control. Some things aren't, some things are, but many things are outside of us. Dr. Saunders, I really wanted to talk with you and ask you a question about renal disease, particularly end-stage renal disease and how that's affecting black women, how that's affecting kidney. Uh, I think Dr. Simpson kind of led, the, led the, the conversation with the question of why we might be in this, but what are the real outcome, what are the real impacts of this? Thank you so much. I think following up with what Dr. Simpson said, um, we know that um, African Americans are four times more likely to have end-stage kidney disease, um, but the two most common causes are diabetes and high blood pressure. And so we want to um, be aware of our environment and how that influences both our likelihood of having that disease and being able to control it. Um, but the important thing to sort of prevent those diseases from harming the kidneys and preventing that kidney harm from going further is knowing that there are things that we can do to prevent progression. And so we want to absolutely prevent people in our communities from having high blood pressure, from having diabetes. But we also know that once you have it, there are things that you can absolutely do to get those diseases under control or even make them sort of where they're not, um, where you don't have diabetes anymore. So we, it's hard, but we say that if you lose 5 to 10% of your body weight, you are, you know, you're, some people have diabetes disappeared. Nobody wants the needle. Nobody wants insulin. But there are things that you can do to prevent progression or even to reverse it. It is not easy, but it is doable. Um, and then the same thing with high blood pressure. We know that there are really delicious high-salt foods all around. And I'm not saying never have those foods, but those are things that we can do in moderation. And as Dr. Simpson said, our environment doesn't necessarily make it easy um, to do those things, um, but those are you know, really positive steps that we can take while we still are in this environment to protect our health. And then the third thing I want to say, because I would be remiss if I didn't, is working with a physician. So having a primary care doctor, not knowing that you have diabetes or high blood pressure doesn't make it go away. It doesn't prevent the damage from those, from those illnesses, but you can partner with a physician that you, or a healthcare professional that you like and trust um, to get good information about how to uh, control those diseases to prevent further, further damage to your health. 
Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Simpson. I've heard from many people, people like look like me and talk like me sometimes, that say if you don't know about it, it's not there. And that's actually not true. And I think you brought up some really good points. When intervention doesn't work and there is and when unfortunately someone is facing end-stage renal disease and might need a kidney transplant, that's something that we at Gift of Hope deal with. And I think, especially as we're here at the Black Women's Expo, we, I really want to kind of hone in on the idea of, the conver- of, of us having a conversation about our health and also when we make decisions about being a donor, whether that's a living donor or a deceased donor. So I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit to deceased donor and deceased donor decisions. Dr. Simpson, you're a transplant surgeon. You transplant kidneys and livers. Tell us a little bit about what goes into that and how a person becomes a, a recipient and why you've started a focus particularly on uh, establishing uh, a, a line of transplantation opportunities. Yeah. There are things that are kind of in our control to affect health equity, right? To, to make sure that we have equal access and, the, and, and equal opportunity to have our, achieve our best health. That's what health equity means, right? And so falling victim to myths, misconceptions, and distrust, those are things that we can change to, uh, to sort of help us achieve health equity. But there are also things that institutions need to change, right? And so those, that speaks to structural racism, um, institutional racism. Now, when you look at research and what research you know, is out there in terms of um, transplantation, the research and the medical data will tell us that black patients are less likely to um, be able to navigate the transplant process and be listed. So we're less likely to be listed for an organ. That disparity is, is one of the big reasons that I decided we needed to have a specific program to reach out to the black community and help them along the way. So I'm really at the far end stage of sort of the kidney disease spectrum. Um, I think it's very important to talk about prevention, as Dr. Saunders said, thinking about what we can do to slow or stall or even prevent the progression of kidney disease. It's so important. And, you know, trust me, I love to transplant. Um, but, um, you know, there, there's plenty of that. But we really need to be focusing on prevention. But, you know, what this program does is, you know, once patients get beyond that, you know, we all know that sadly, once you get to those end stages of kidney disease, there's no going back. The transplant process is really a marathon. It's not, it's not like any other doctor's visit. You know, if you have, um, you know, a, a, a breast mass, you go in and you see the breast surgeon, you're examined. Usually in that same visit, you can schedule your surgery to have that taken care of. Transplantation is very different, and, and one of the main reasons is because we don't, we can't offer a kidney transplant to everybody because it's, it's limited by the supply of kidneys that we have out there. And so, therefore, there needs to be a selection process. And, um, and the selection process takes into account a couple of things. It's one, to see if the patient is healthy enough to undergo such a, a big procedure, but also, do they have the means to care for this organ? Um, it's a limited resource, and sadly, um, you ha- we have to think about what would happen if that patient couldn't care for that organ, what that means for that patient, which would be loss of the organ, but what that also means for the patient on the list who missed the opportunity to get that organ, right? So you have all these things to think about, and, um, and it, it creates you know, kind of a challenging situation. And so as a patient navigates the transplant process, they have to be able to demonstrate 
that they don't have other illnesses that would prevent them from being good candidates for transplantation. They also have to demonstrate that they have certain resources, such as a ride to and from the transplant center to follow up for their appointments, adequate insurance to cover their immunosuppression or anti-rejection medications. They also have to show compliance, which is, you know, a really challenging thing to, to demonstrate, which is, you know, are they prompt with their appointments? Do they show up to their appointments on time? So all of those things go into, are taken into account, and then a committee will meet and say whether or not a patient is placed on the list. Um, and then, as I said in the beginning, black patients are less likely to be placed on that list, and I think that's you know wrapped up in, in things that we can control, but also things that the institution needs to change. And so the program I've created is, is hoping to bridge both of those. We work on building trust with uh, the community and, um, and helping to dispel a lot of those myths and misconceptions, but at the same time, looking at some of our institutional practices and seeing where are we leaving patients behind? You know, it's not really one size fits all. We shouldn't be colorblind, right? We should be looking at the social determinants that, you know, of, of different communities and helping to bridge that gap. And I think that really speaks to the question of equality versus equity. Mm-hmm. And equity means that we meet people where they are and give them the resources they need to be successful. Absolutely. Dr. Saunders, I want to ask you about living donation because Dr. Simpson has laid out a really clearly for us what happens to get that transplant, but how do we get living donors to really understand their process too? Thank you so much for asking that. So at the University of Chicago, I am the living donor advocate. So I am the physician that meets with people who are interested in being living donors um, because a friend or a family member or a community member or even someone that they don't know um, is in need of an organ. And one of the things that's important for people to know is we certainly want people to donate, but we think that living donation is so important that we won't jeopardize someone's health if they're not able to donate, meaning if they don't want to donate, if we don't think it's good for them medically, or if we don't think it's good for their overall life in terms of their finances or their social situation. And they get, we say, a a million-dollar workup. It's probably not a million dollars, but it is a really thorough workup. Um, And they meet with the social worker, the kidney doctors, the transplant surgeons with me, and making sure that this is the right thing for them overall. And as Dr. Simpson talked about, the, there are not enough organs for um, people who need them. And so we want to increase the number of people who donate their organs so that we have deceased donors. But we also want to increase the number of people who donate while they're living so that they can shorten the wait or even prevent people from having to be on dialysis in the first place, which we think is the best answer. Um, and so just having people... One of the things that we unfortunately run into is that people don't want to ask or, you know, as you talked about, keep their personal history personal. They don't want people to know that their kidneys aren't doing so well um, or that they're on dialysis and they don't want to jeopardize their cousin or aunt or family member. And, And I just want people to know we will not jeopardize your loved one. We will do our best to make sure that they get a thorough evaluation and that they're taken care of, not only because we don't want to harm people, we didn't get into this business to harm people, but we also don't want to harm the whole process of transplant mm-hmm. and of living donation and, and you know having a poor outcome will really shut a program down. No institution, Western New York, Chicago, any of the transplant centers has any desire to have that happen. 
So Dr. Saunders, one of the things that I hear, and I work at University of Chicago as well with during focusing on organ and tissue donation with deceased donors is I hear people say things like, if I am a donor, then I'm, if I'm registered to be a donor, I'm not going to be able to be well cared for. And I really want to ask both of you as physicians, can you talk about that a little bit and maybe dispel some of the myths that go along with that? Sure. I can say that those are separate processes. And so we all physicians, most physicians, I'm sure there's an exception to every rule, really want the best for the people that are in front of us. And we'll do everything to make sure that people have the best possible outcome. Donation only comes into play when there are not options that will preserve or prolong life. And so I think that's really important to know. And and the second thing to know is that those are separate teams. So it's not the physician who is in the ICU who's saying, ah, let me not do enough because they've signed their... Or- the, the physician who's trying to prolong life does not, is not even aware of that. Um, so having people trust, which is a hard thing to do given a lot of the things that have, that have happened before, but having people trust that um, everything will be done for either you um, or for your loved one. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Simpson, as a transplant surgeon. I ask you to share your perspective as well. Absolutely. Um, You know, I'm a transplant surgeon now, but of course, to get here, I had to do a general surgery uh, residency. And so that involves, um, you know, training for five to seven years in general surgery and spending a lot of time on trauma. Okay, so I want to emphasize what Dr. Saunders said about the, the different teams. You know, hospitals are like cities. There's so many different teams at work. The trauma team, when a patient rolls into the trauma bay, their first order of business is to save that patient's life. The trauma team does not look at driver's licenses. They don't even know the name of the patient. There's a completely separate team who handles that. There's an administrative team that will process insurance information, look at the driver's license and all that other stuff. So those are two separate processes that really never join. And then, as Dr. Saunders said, when when it gets to a point where suppose all the life-saving efforts have been exhausted and, and we recognize as a, you know, as a trauma team or you know, an ICU team that there's nothing else to offer this patient, then another team will be the ones to come in and um, you know, declare that situation and then you know, move forward with the process of you know, discussing organ donation. So it's, it's you know, having that knowledge that there are those different teams at play, I, I, I hope, would, you know, go very far to help patients to feel comfortable that, um, you know, someone's not checking their driver's license before making a care plan for them when they roll into the emergency department um, in, a, in a critical situation. I thank you so much for saying that because I think it really makes a difference to hear from women who look like ourselves to talk about this very honestly and also say, as experts, you all know this from inside the hospital as healthcare providers. So the living donation is super important, and at Gift of Hope, we focus on deceased donation, which is super important, but it's very important to hear your voices as we discuss it. Well, I, we, I will, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Saunders. I'd like you to talk a little bit about COVID and how this is, might, might be impacting kidney health, mm-hmm. and also then I'll ask Dr. Um, Simpson to talk about how COVID might be impacting uh, uh, transplantation. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. It is hard to talk about uh, health and to talk about black health 
without talking about COVID. That has been, um, had a huge impact, not only on um, individual um, black people, but also on black communities as businesses um, are not, you know, people have to still work, people are, kids are home. And so, you know, even though that's not what you asked me, I think I wanna say for people who are still debating whether or not they should get the vaccine, now is the time. Things are really, starting to get serious. They were serious before um, and then slowed down. But this is as people, as students go back to school, as the world starts to open up and we want it to continue to open, now is the time to get the vaccine. That is something that is within our control. You can walk to your local pharmacy. You can walk to your local health uh, center. Now is the time to get the vaccine. If you have questions, any physician, any healthcare professional will answer those questions. There's the CDC website that will give you uh, unbiased information. Okay, so that's my, I had to say that. And we endorse that, so thank you for sharing that. (laughs) But the second thing is that we know that COVID as a virus uh, starts this inflammatory process um, that attacks the kidneys. And so uh, people may recover, may live, and and a lot of people don't, um, but may have long-term lung issues. And we know that people, young, healthy, previously healthy people have needed lung transplants after COVID, and also tends to have this um, predisposition to attack the kidneys. And so we know that people who have previously been healthy or have had some kidney disease have had worsened kidney function um, after being in the hospital from COVID. We also know that just being in the ICU uh, is a risk for your your kidneys. Um, And so people, because of uh, fluid shifts or low blood pressure or, or the medications that have been used to sort of sustain their life have had some kidney damage um, from COVID. And then we also know that people who already have kidney disease and are on um, dialysis and need to be in their center three times a, a week and be on, uh, you know, tra- have, be transported have also sort of been at an increased risk of the infectious uh, risk for for COVID. And so it's really impacted people's lives in in multiple ways and some in which we cannot control, but the things that we can control, um, I would urge us all for, you know, you may not be worried about it, but, you know, we want you to think about your kids um, or your grandkids or your grandmother, grandfather, um, and sort of really work to have this community spirit that we know that everybody has, but are not maybe thinking about it in that way. Especially when we started off the conversation with the prevalence of kidney challenges, Mm -hmm. I'll just say kidney challenges Mm -hmm. in our communities of color, what you're saying is even more impactful. If we know that COVID impacts kidneys in that way, and we know we have a higher risk because of prevalence of this, we have to be thinking about really protecting ourselves and our families and, and we, our communities. And we know that some people, you know, are not able to work from home. They are still having to go to their jobs where they are in, you know, patient face or client facing roles, driving lifts in the schools. And so we want to be able to um, protect ourselves personally, but then also really to work to protect our community. Thank you for that. Dr. Simpson, can you talk about how COVID has impacted transplantation over the past year or so? Sure. Um, you know, I was just writing some notes down here as Dr. Saunders was talking about the different ways that COVID has impacted transplantation, and there's many ways. Thinking back about, you know, when COVID was first on the scene and hospitals were overwhelmed, 
there were a few different ways that, that COVID affected transplantation. One is that we simply didn't have a lot of information about COVID, and there was a lot of fear. Um, as we all know, patients who are transplanted have to take immunosuppressive medications for the rest of their lives. So, you know, anti-rejection medications, as I call, say to my patients, and those medications dumb down the immune system, you know, uh, to put it in kind of a layman's terms. And so that impacts our immune system's ability to fight off infection. And so there was a lot of fear, a lot of unknown around that. And so um, for kidney disease in particular, you know, kidney disease is different from liver disease. I said I transplant both kidneys and livers. There's no dialysis for liver disease. So if a patient had liver disease, you know, we had to make the decision, do we transplant or do we not? And, and you don't have kind of a lifeline or, a, or, you know, something to fall back on. For kidney disease, um, we do have dialysis to fall back on. And so what a trend that we saw early last year was that both on the patient side and some of the transplant center side, people were, were deciding not to move forward with transplantation, um, deciding to wait to see what would happen with COVID. And, um, you know, I think we all can agree that, that dialysis is a wonderful modality. If we didn't have it, um, you know, the outlook for patients with kidney disease would be extremely grim. But dialysis does have its uh, side effects and its, you know, poor effects on the body and, and prolonging that, um, you know, is, is a serious decision to make. And so we saw that happening at the beginning of COVID. You know, a lot of fear on the part of our patients who weren't yet immunosuppressed, um, the fear of becoming immunosuppressed in the setting of this pandemic. And so patients were, you know, we would call patients up and say, hey, we have an organ for you. And they'd say, I, I don't want to come in. I don't want to get transplanted, which was devastating conversation to have. Um, the other thing um, that we saw was immediately was a, uh, a sharp decline in the number of donors um, because we didn't have in the beginning reliable testing. Um, and there's, you know, no way that we wanted to take that risk and potentially give patients COVID through transplantation. And so when it wasn't 100%, you know, clear cut whether or not a donor had um, COVID, we would turn that donor down. And so that was many lost opportunities to get somebody transplanted. Another thing that we saw were for the patients who were already transplanted, Dr. Saunders talked about the effects of COVID on the kidneys. And so some devastating stories that we had to tell were patients who were transplanted who got COVID and lost their kidney transplant. And that was just heartbreaking to see. And then the last thing that we saw was um, the impact of COVID on available hospital beds and ICU beds. So for a liver transplant, patients need to recover in the ICU for the first few days after a liver transplant. For kidney transplant, it's kind of 50-50. Some patients can recover in a regular hospital bed. Some patients need the services of an ICU. Dr. Saunders, you know, was talking about that sort of community spirit that we all need to have where you have some patients who say, or some people, sorry, who say, you know what, I'm not worried about myself. Yes, you may not be worried about yourself. However, if the hospital is full because of COVID, that impacts everybody, not just the immunosuppressed, not just the patients who need to come in and, 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 you know, get a transplant. But, you know, we had several situations where the hospital was full. And so if we wanted to call a patient in to do a transplant, particularly a liver transplant, if the ICU was full, we couldn't do it. We had no place to put them. That also pertains to people who come in with stroke 
People who come in with a surgical emergency need to have an appendectomy. If you don't have the space to accommodate that patient, they're going to suffer. So it's not just about the immunosuppressed or the immunocompromised. And I think that's a message we really need to give to the community when it comes to COVID. But yeah, those are all the observations that we made on the transplant side. Thank you for sharing both of those, because I think that um, we many people think of COVID as a very, as a lung issue only, or an issue that if you survive, there are no consequences. And also that we don't think about the bigger picture for the whole hospital system. We hear about it on the news, but the reality is what you just said, if you don't have a bed, you can't be treated. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's what it boils down to. Um, I wanna thank you ladies for sharing all of your expertise today. As we wrap up, I wanna start with you, Dr. Um, Saunders. How would you want, what would you want to leave our conversation with today? What do you want people to know about donation, about what you're doing and how we can be aware of how to help each other and ourselves? So that's a great question. I think that one of the things that I would say is, you know, the the purpose of racism is to distract us from our important work. And so we don't want to be distracted from our important work. And, And part of our important work is just to live our best lives. So as long as we can, as healthy as we can for our families and for our communities, and, and I think that's what we need to um, both help ourselves and help others. I think there are larger issues that need to be rectified and improved upon, and we can continue to work for that. But ultimately, um, we just want to, um, where we are now, in the situation we are now, sort of do the best we can while we um, continue to, to make things better. Thank you, Dr. Saunders. Dr. Simpson, same question to you. What would you like to leave our our audience with today? You know, it's very, very similar to what Dr. Saunders was saying. You know, we we talked earlier about what's in our control and, and what's not in our control. Being aware of what's in our control and really making sure that we're doing everything to, to control those things, you know, so making sure that we're educated, making sure that we're in the know, you know, when we speak about kidney disease specifically, you know, kidney disease is a continuum, meaning that it's not that your kidneys are 100% one day and they're not the next day. It's, it's, it's a progressive damage and a progressive loss that happens over time. The sooner you catch that, the more control you have over that narrative, the more control you have over that story of what the rest of your life is going to look like. So, you know, get screened. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it, it isn't really, I think, I forget who it was, but somebody said, you know, if you can't see it, then, you, you know, you, it's not there. That's not true, unfortunately. Um, you know, you don't see kidney disease. There are no symptoms of kidney disease very, very early on. And if we ignore the fact that there's, you know, people in our family that have kidney disease or that our environment is putting us at risk for developing kidney disease and we don't find out until we're too late until it's too late then we've missed a huge opportunity to affect our own health and so you know really kind of taking the reins um, to to create health equity for ourselves is something that we really need to do so that's what I would really want to leave with the audience thank you so much dr. Simpson I think that is it. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. I think we've had a quite an interesting discussion. And I think I'm sure in our show notes, there'll be information about how to get in contact with the various programs discussed today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Tina Montgomery, Supervisor, Community Outreach. In my role, I'm responsible for raising awareness and educating the community about organ, eye, and tissue donation. 
Urban legend would say that you can purchase an organ on the black market. That is false. Organs and tissues are not sold to the highest bidder. The field of organ donation and transplantation is one of the most regulated areas of healthcare. Both state and federal legislation have been put in place to provide the safest and most equitable system for allocations, distribution, and transplantation of donated organs. U.S. law prohibits the purchase and sale of human organs. Organs are provided to recipients based on need, not according to wealth or race, according to U.S. law. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Hope. I hope you'll start the conversation about organ and tissue donation with your loved ones today and make your wishes known. You can register to become a donor on giftofhope.org or by texting the word HOPE, H-O-P-E, to 51555. If you've enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to Let's Talk Hope or tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is produced by Rivet. To hear more great podcasts, visit rivet360.com.